Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest, and of course, all of my guests are special, but I'm especially excited and joyful to be talking today with Jeremy Thorpe about the help economy. But before I introduce how fabulous he is, I have a favor to ask of you. And that is, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and also follow it. This would give me great encouragement to keep going with what I am doing. Now, on to our guest. When we think of the economy, in this post and present pandemic world, usually we think of it in negative terms, like the economy is suffering, downturn in the economy, recession looming or we tend to think of it in facts and figures. But today I'm going to be talking with PwC Chief Economist Jeremy Thorpe about a new NRMA insurance project, which is all about the importance of the help economy and what an incredible contribution it makes, particularly to Australia. Jeremy is PwC's Chief Economist, and he's also a partner in um, PwC's Integrated Infrastructure Team. He also serves on the board of Flourish Australia, which works in local communities to help people on their mental health recovery journey. So I know it's going to be a fabulous discussion. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, thanks for having me on me. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned in the introduction, traditionally, when we're talking about the economy, economists tend to measure it in terms of gross domestic product or GDP. Is this the only way that people can do the economy? Well, no, but unfortunately, GDP, I might describe it as a necessary evil. It has consistency. It measures what we produce and what we consume, but it doesn't necessarily capture a whole lot of other things about our society that we might value. It doesn't capture whether we're mentally healthy. It doesn't capture whether the environment has uh, been degraded or not degraded. But that's not to say that we should dismiss GDP. I mean, I think that is, as I said, consistent, it's measurable, and we know what it measures. The challenge with many of the other things are that we debate them. How do we put a value on the environment? How do we put a value on our mental health? So we might want to expand out, but expanding has a whole lot of other risks as well. Yeah, this is a really good discussion. It's amazing how when you put a value on things, it changes behaviour. A lot of my writing is actually to do with how reducing our consumption can help the environment. So there's a sustainability message. If I said people do this, have shorter showers and it'll help the environment. Well, you know, I mean, that is an important message. But if I tell people, actually, when you look at your water usage, this is how much you can actually save. And in my book, I've got quite a lot of detailed mathematics that explain this, courtesy of my husband, Neil, when you reduce the flow, when you reduce the time, like this is actually the dollar amount. It's like a ka-ching moment for people. That's right. Often it's just um, explaining and people will value, it's my alone time. I I value that (laughs) over and above anything else. So maybe you, you do view that differently, but letting people kind of go through that thought process of being exposed to the full range of the costs and the full range of the benefits allows a more informed debate around what you should be doing, whether that's your shower, whether that's um, (laughs) purchasing different items, whether that's the way we think about a whole range of government activities and services. It's just being more thoughtful about it, I think, leads to better outcomes. Well, now back to this report, what is the help economy? So we were trying to understand the way that 
beyond traditional measures of economic activity, the way that uh, is there value in the way that people help. And what we've really unpacked is there's different types of help. There's um, the traditional formal help, which is you know through charities and through formal organisations where you volunteer your time or you contribute in a particular way. We've measured that for a number of years, but then there's also informal help in the household. And we've measured that also for a couple of years now around unpaid work. Mm-hmm. And we know, for example, that women disproportionately do the majority of the unpaid work within the house. And by that, we mean things that, you, in a sense, you could have contracted out. So you, you clean the house, you do the dishes, you do the washing. There's a whole lot of activities in the household. But there's a whole lot of things that are not in the household as well. We call that informal help outside the household. And that might be help from your neighbours. It might be help from random people. It might be help from family or friends that don't live with you. And so we wanted to really understand how people help in that context. But we also wanted to understand how people receive help in that context because maybe there's a little difference between the way we perceive giving help and receiving help. So that was the basis for our our research in this context. Abels, let's go back to giving and receiving help. How is that different? Are more people happy receiving or are more people happy giving? So it's a really tricky one here. Just because you think you are helping doesn't mean you are actually helping. And so I'm going to try and find the, the numbers here. So roughly 60% of the emotional support that people thought they were giving, people said that actually it wasn't helpful. (laughs) So that that might be gratuitous advice is is the other way you might describe that. So while we often talk about informal help as being almost random acts of kindness or maybe not so random, but, you know, they're they're positive activities that people do, the the emotional support one really was a a bit of a double-edged sword. And, in fact, most people kind of went, I don't need the emotional support outside the household, which I thought was a really uh, a really interesting element there. So it's not physical help, you know, running and doing errands or put, putting in the bins for you or whatever other things people might be doing. That emotional support, clearly support is in the eye of the beholder in that context. I think that's a really interesting point because particularly I think in this age of so much social media, have we lost our ability to listen? Have we lost our ability to really actively listen? It's so easy to talk. I'm a bit of an extrovert, obviously, because I do a podcast and, and so forth. And it's one of those skills that I really have to put a lot of effort into, to listening to my friends. I struggle not to talk over you there because I'm really trying to make sure I'm listening as well. <laughs> <laughs> All good. <laughs> it's a really interesting point. And so going back to the value of the help economy, like what are we talking about in terms of the research findings about how valuable this is to our economy? Yeah, so we looked at, as I said, we looked at the three different forms of help, volunteering, formal help in the house and informal help outside the house. We put a value of about $16 billion annually on formal help in the households, formal help, volunteering, $16 billion of through those official channels. What we found is the informal help was about $14 billion. In other words, those, those things outside your house, not having that same structure as formal volunteering, slightly less there, so 16 versus 14. These are dwarfed by help within the house, unpaid help in the house, so that your domestic chores and so forth, at $2.17 trillion. Wow. And that's because we live in our house. We spend hours there every day. Uh, we're all in that context. We kind of have to do those activities. So there is a very large number associated with that. So let's just put that to one side. But what we're seeing then is 
informal help outside the house is not far off, 16 versus 14, formal volunteering. So we give a lot of credence to formal volunteering. It has an important role. But in fact, other forms of help actually have quite a value as well. Wow, that's really fascinating. I'm a little bit blown away by the value of the jobs that are done in the household that are never really spoken about. And as I said, that's disproportionately women. There's there's some age differences here as we see different cultural norms change over time. That value is just, in a sense, living our life. But it, it, it is, in a sense, activities that we consider you might not want it to, but you're doing it because you're in that family construct. Yeah, exactly. And of course, there are different cultural and other expectations. I'm very blessed, I should add, in my second marriage that my husband does a lot of stuff. And I'll turn around and go, oh, yeah, I should hang out that washing. And it's there, already hung out. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen in a lot of households. I think it is changing over time. We are seeing that change. So maybe you're just slightly ahead of the curve. I think I'm just really blessed, to be honest. I don't take it for granted. So back to volunteerism, so the formal volunteering. So Australia used to have some of the highest rates of volunteering in the world. Are we still world leaders when it comes to volunteering? I don't know if we're world leaders, but clearly it has a very significant hold on our community. As I said, $16 billion a year of time is given through those channels. And on top of that, there's a whole lot of donations and so forth. So it is a significant component of our society. But what's interesting is, it is becoming slightly less significant over time. So pre-COVID, we were seeing a decline of about 4.3% a year in the value of time contributed through formal volunteering channels. So it's, it's falling on a consistent basis since 2014. During COVID, so during 2020, we saw that fall by just about a third again. So rather than 4%, 33%. Now, obviously, that's because lockdowns meant that people couldn't go through those channels in the same way. But that decline is, is, is consistent over time. And so you might say, why is that? Well, I think what we're seeing is alternative channels for help have emerged. As we've seen through digitisation, we've seen new channels to market. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we've got new channels to help. We're seeing people being able to, through digital means, access uh, good causes and contribute financially or be identified as ways of helping through not a formal channel. And so we're seeing, I think, this shift of kind of a decentralisation of channels to help. We often see that, and we particularly see that, when there's crises that are out of the out of the normal. And I'll give you the example of the bushfires mm. in um, the ACT in New South Wales and Victoria. It seems so long ago, but at the end of 2019, there was a massive outpouring, for example, of donations. Many went through formal channels. Many th- emerged through new channels through, that had bubbled up through social media. And equally, help kind of didn't necessarily go through those formal channels. New channels emerged, particular to that circumstance. So we're seeing um, a breakdown in established models of help, and we're seeing a much more dynamic and maybe consumer-led rather than organisational-led responses to challenges. That's really interesting. Actually, last year I had a challenge of giving away 1,000 items. Originally, it was to give away 366 and then it expanded. And this started just as the bushfires hit the South Coast. And to be honest, my immediate reaction was, this is great. I've got a challenge to give away stuff. There's all these people who've lost stuff. Let's just give them stuff. And a lot of friends who particularly worked in the charity space, they said, look, no, don't do that. Like people are grieving. They're grieving the loss of what they have. 
They don't need your clothes. It mightn't be what fits them and it mightn't be what they want right now. They might be really more concerned about getting fencing up for their livestock. So this is to say not to give, but, you know, just to be a little bit more cognizant and listening, I guess, and a bit more thoughtful about what the needs are of people who've really gone through these things. I think there's a lot to that, which is not every channel, just because it is available, is the right channel. And so this this is not advocating that we need to run away from formal charities or volunteer organisations in any context. They all have strengths and weaknesses. But I think that we're seeing alternative channels emerge, suggest that there's some demand or need. But again, it might be the demand or need of the givers rather than the receivers that is driving that. So there's that tension again between the value of receiving versus giving. Because it feels good to give, doesn't it? It does feel good to give. A friend of mine who'd worked in charities for many years, she felt that some of the really consistent big number givers, like it was almost addictive for them. And sometimes there was this bit of disconnect. Like on one hand, they were seemingly very generous, but they weren't so used to receiving sometimes themselves. Yes. So it's an interesting thing. Have you looked at the sort of an age breakdown with volunteerism? And I ask this because in the past I've been a member of Rotary I'm currently Vice President of the Zonta Club of Canberra Breakfast. I'm an admin of my local By Nothing group and my husband, Neil, is a volunteer with the Rural Fire Service and um, it's a bit of a joke that whenever there's a big fire, he's usually away on a work trip. He doesn't do that deliberately, obviously. Um, (laughs) It's amazing how that happens. But, of course, the commitment is year-round. It's not just on the fire ground. And one of the consistent themes tends to be the difficulty in capturing younger people to join. Now, it's really easy just to go, well, oh, younger people aren't volunteering. But a lot of younger people that I speak with are really deeply passionate about things like the environment and sustainability, about poverty globally. So it's not like they're not doing things, but is there a difference in terms of how they're engaging with these issues? Yeah, so what we find is at the, the two extremes from the Uh, informal help outside the community, outside the household. We find the people who are older, 65 plus, are less likely to be giving help. And that's because at their life stage, they're more likely to be receiving or they've got a a different focus. Really, it's 18 to 24 and 25 to 34. So those first two groups of ages we find are the most active in giving help. Now, that's because, again, probably more active in a whole range of ways. And as I said, giving help outside the household, it might be with your sporting club and training training young children and, and so forth. It might also be more active in some of the social activities or environmental activities or movements of various sorts. So up to that age, more active. The, the middle years, people might kind of calm down a little bit. And I think that's possibly because people have more household obligations that age group where you may be more likely to have children you're more you're more likely to be the one providing the help by running around taking children to soccer or tennis or whatever and and coaching in that kind of context so we do see that life cycle very active giving initially less active over time as we go on it's not surprising i suspect yeah it isn't surprising when you think about it and i wasn't involved in any groups for a while when i was single parenting i mean i just couldn't really get to meetings And I remember I did go to a meeting once. It was a Christmas meeting and my kids were young and my youngest was still being toilet trained and they were hungry and they were, you know, six o'clock rock. And I just went, look, this is, and and every, nearly everyone else in the club was sort of at that almost retirement or, or just retirement sort of age. And I just thought, yeah, look, we're just at different stages of life here. That's, that's it. And so we can't expect everyone to be giving all the time. 
And it's nice, the point is you're hopefully receiving at that time when you've got those commitments and you are got the family, in a sense, uh, the obligations, that you're more likely to be receiving help at that time. So hopefully it's a give and a take over your life. So what about some of this informal help? You've referred to that a few times. You've referred to that people don't necessarily value the advice (laughs) as much (laughs) as you might have thought. The gratuitous advice, but what are some of the things that people are actually valuing? So we've the, well, the thing they're receiving particularly, so people tend to receive a lot of emotional support. In other words, you're outside the house or people outside the house providing emotional support. That, that can be very informal. It might be a little bit more formal over time, but you can think of that in your own life where people have kind of propped you up. The second one is teaching, coaching or advice. And as I said, there's a lot of support in an academic sense or it might be in a coaching sense at a sporting club or a a knitting club or whatever I think (laughs) that club environment is still kind of important in that but not necessarily domestic work is the second and so that is someone outside the house just might help out with something around your house you can you can understand that and unpaid childcare is the fourth major grouping of help that people give and again that might be your neighbour looking after your child after school. It might be a brother or a sister or a mother or a father who don't live with you providing that support. So it, it is quite a range. What we see with the, that kind of support is it's often very small in the sense of formal help. We said is through charities and so forth, the time committed is about $16 billion. Informal help is about $14 billion outside the house but a lot more activity. In other words, they're smaller, less committed activities, Mm. but they add up almost to the same number. Yeah, they do, don't they? And I just think my personal ethos is the importance of just giving and giving regularly in little ways. Like I think sometimes people think you've got to do something really big and really significant, but, you know, it might just be checking in on someone, checking in on a neighbour who's alone or in my complex. There's a lady who's a single parent and so sometimes my kids play with her kids. I mean, it's nothing major. I mean, the kids like playing with their kids. But it's just making those connections. That all adds up. And if you weren't doing that, there's there's a a cost or a a limitation that that they're suffering in that context. So random acts of kindness. We don't necessarily think of them that way, but in fact, that's often what they are. Mm. Are Australians good at random acts of kindness? Well, all the surveys say that we are. Um, So we're we're a pretty kind of friendly group. And I I put that down a little bit to we're an outside kind of community. So we're more likely to bump into people. Now, we're not stuck in winter all all year indoors. Um, So (laughs) maybe maybe Canberra is a different different bucket of fish there, kettle of fish. I, I think the thing is each country has different attitudes to this and responds to different needs. So I don't think we should be saying we're, you know, we're better than Algeria or, or Finland. I think the issue is are we doing the right thing by the people in need at that particular time in our community? You paint a very positive picture, which I think is really lovely. And in terms of where people are doing this throughout Australia, I mean, are there any trends? Are there any areas where there's specific themes about how people are helping others? So you do see differences in the different jurisdictions. It's interesting. And we looked at three particular jurisdictions, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. And so it, not necessarily uh, stark, but, but noticeable differences. And for Queenslanders, it was domestic works, maintenance and gardening and running errands. So maybe that makes sense. Queensland, a bit sunnier, outdoors doing gardening and maintenance, fine. People in New South Wales were more likely to be at community assistance and environmental protection. Interesting difference there. Victorians, it was emotional support and personal care and assistance. And this survey was in 2020 when the, the lockdown was particularly yeah. strong in Victoria. 
So that emotional support kind of makes sense. So again, circumstances are different in different jurisdictions and people respond with different forms of help in in that context. So I guess a lot of people were struggling with their mental health during lockdown last year. And this year, again, although I would like to think people are a little bit more prepared for it this year, but I don't know. It's always hard. I don't think you can ever really prepare for these things. Well, I think also people have become emotionally tired. If you thought it was going to happen once, you can get through it. I find it's been noticed that people have been worn down a little bit more this year. Hopefully that's going to all turn around. Yeah, let's let's hope. But in the meantime, there's a message here about the value and importance of helping others, which is which is quite important. Yeah. So you obviously have a passion for this. You can tell, obviously, the way you're talking about it. you've obviously had involvement in this this report. Do you volunteer yourself? How are you participating in the help economy? Well, as you said, I, I, I sit on the board of a, a not-for-profit called Flourish Australia, providing mental health support for people in, struggling in, in a whole range of facets, in New South Wales particularly, but also in Queensland and Victoria. I get a lot out of that in the sense that I think it's making a clear difference for people's lives. I hope it's one of those ones where help is not reciprocated or not, <laughs> not appreciated. I, I think it is appreciated. But also, as I, I have a passion for some of this type of economic work, and a lot of it is in that not-for-profit space where not-for-profits are trying to understand their economic value and, and tell their story in maybe a more economic way to stakeholders, whether that be government or funders or even the participants in those organisations. So I do do a bit on that side as well. Well, it sounds like you are quite active. And I was joking a little bit before we recorded about the Beatles song, Help. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being round. But obviously this is something you take to heart with the work that you do in Flourish. It is. But I do think everyone helps in their own different ways. And so that's a very formal way. The whole point of this is we can help through so many informal channels. So what would you say to someone about if they're thinking maybe of volunteering or helping in some way? How would you encourage, how would you suggest they start? Well, I think the point is start. As with most things in life, if you sit around and think about it for too long, you'll never do it. Fast to fail. If it's not giving you emotional comfort and it's not helping others, try something else. I think that's the key to everything here. Oh, that's great advice. And I have one final question for you which is, do you have a frugalister tip to share? Is there something you do that helps you save money? I do, and I'm late to this party, so I'll admit that I'm bad in this sense. We put solar panels in this year, and so, again, there's thousands of people, millions of people out there have already done that. But what it really focused, what you measure, um, you value. And so through the solar panels, we've now been able to work out which appliances in the house actually use the most energy and really cut back on the things that you don't really need that appliance on all the time. And so, again, it's that ability to measure has, has really enabled us to save things that we've never given any consideration about this particular usage of appliances. Well, that's a really fabulous tip. Was it hard to put in solar? I didn't personally install it, so <laughs> no. It's like many things. It's it's complex just because you don't. it's not an area you're skilled at when you're trying to choose between solar panels or solar panel providers. But do, again, do your research and I think you'll get a good outcome. In your noticing, your mindfulness about your electricity guzzling appliances, which ones were the standout surprises for you? Oh, the, the killer is air conditioning. But like it is, the, it is the biggest one by far. We had two fridges, for example. We had a kind of a, a long-term storage fridge freezer thing and realised just how inefficient that one was compared to the one that... So having an old fridge was not a good good energy usage and one of those things that it might actually make sense to replace it with a newer one now. 
that doesn't sound great from an, uh, an environmental perspective of replacing the product, but it's, it's a guzzler of energy. Mm. And we just had no real sense of it. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's for various times, some energy companies with government-backed funding have had schemes to repurchase old fridges for this this reason. And I think there's a bit more of a move with the circular economy to try and recycle what is in them, but it is still a big issue too. Do you completely just build a new one? What is better for the environment? That's right. And we're not there yet, I think, with white goods and many other appliances. But you know, I think if people are asking for it, the market will solve that over time and maybe with a bit of government support in that mix. But the circular economy is coming and people better get on board. Now, how can my listeners access this Help Economy project and the report and the work that you have done? Head off to the NRMA website. They've got a, a report that incorporates our research and you can delve into some of the detail there. Wonderful. Thank you so very much for being my guest today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Every night